Murder Gang, I'm back. I can't apologize enough for leaving my listeners hanging, but I had some family stuff going on, and I had some personal stuff going on, and I just came back from vacation. I went on a girls' trip to Punta Cana, Dominican Republic. I had an absolutely fabulous time. If you have not been or considering somewhere for vacation, I highly recommend it. So, I still want to do videos for y'all, but at the moment, I don't have the proper camera. So, I'm hoping to be able to do stuff like that sometime in June because I want to make sure if I'm doing videos that the quality is right. So, this episode was a shock and it's personal to me because I actually know the perpetrator's family members. I just found out about this a few months ago, and when I did, y'all, it completely blew my mind. I have never met the perpetrator, though, so let's just keep that in mind. I just know some of his family members. I was asked by the family to respectfully not use their names, so I won't. So with all of that out of the way, let's get to the episode. This episode is about George Emile Banks. On September 25th, 1982, George Banks went on a killing spree in Wilkes Bar in Jenkins Township, Pennsylvania, killing 13 people. His victims included seven children, five were his own, their mothers, some of their relatives, and one bystander. So let's dive into some backstory about George Banks. George Emil Banks was born on June 22, 1942, in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. Banks was of mixed race. His father was black and his mother was white. Because of his mixed race, he suffered from severe racism when he was growing up, which is totally understandable. You're of mixed race. You grew up in the 40s. Eh, I kind of I get it. So at 17, Banks joined the Army, hoping for a successful career, but that didn't happen because he was constantly having disagreements with his supervisors and he was just discharged two years later. In 1961, when Banks was 19, after he had been discharged from the army, he and some accomplices robbed a tavern and shot and injured the owner who was unarmed. He was sentenced to six to 15 years in prison, which was extended because he tried to escape in 1964. He was granted parole in 1969 and his sentence was commuted in 1974. So, After Banks was released, he got married to a woman who was black and they had two daughters. The reason I bring that bring up her race is because, remember, he has racial issues and the couple divorced in 1976. So as we can see, he had some issues going on very early in life. I'm not sure if it was an anger thing or if he was just rebellious or a combination of both. But let's continue on. After his divorce, he, his dating life became chaotic. He decided he only wanted to date white women. In 1982, he bought a house in Wilkes Bar that at one, he at one time shared with his girlfriend, Sharon Mazio. The couple broke up in September, and they were disputing the custody of their son. He had three women living at his house. They were the mothers of his four children, and he had another daughter which also lived with him. So, okay, I got to take a pause here, y'all. Like, what the fuck? There's no way in the entire hell that I'm living with my kid's father and his baby's mamas. 
one thing I'm not going to do is share a man, period. So even though George Banks had a criminal record, in 1980, he was able to get a job as a prison guard at Camp Hill, which for those who don't know, Camp Hill was a prison back then, and it was closed in 2013. Okay, y'all, so here's where the story starts to get interesting. In 1982, his time as a prison guard, Banks told co-workers that the world would soon be consumed by a race war and that he wanted to prevent his five mixed-race children from experiencing the agony of racism. So the first week of September in 1982, he was put on extended leave of absence from his job after a conflict with a supervisor and threatening suicide. The prison ordered him to be examined for mental health issues at an area hospital. I couldn't find out if this happened before or after the breakup, and I'm not sure if he actually sought help either. I couldn't find any info on that. So we can see Banks has major issues with race and racism. I think at this point he was in his thoughts and his feelings, and he let them get the best of him. So Shit really gets crazy from here, y'all. On the night of September 24th, 1982, Banks drank large quantities of straight gin and mixed it with prescription drugs at his home in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. The morning of September 25th, 1982, Banks used an AR-15 to kill eight people in his house. He killed three women in their 20s. Two of the women were sisters. They were all girlfriends and mothers of his children, and he also killed five kids, four of them being his own. So here's the weird part. Banks then dressed in military fatigues, went outside where he saw 22-year-old Jimmy Olsen and 24-year-old Ray Hall Jr., who were just leaving their house across the street. Banks shot at them both yelling, quote, would not tell anybody about this, end quote, before he started firing. He hit both men, injuring Olsen, but fatally wounding Hall. Olsen survived, and then Banks just got in his car and drove away. So, of course, I'm going to interject my opinion here. It sounds to me like he was still high from the liquor and the pills, and you combine that with mental illness It's just a cocktail for a fucking disaster. I mean, you have got to have some serious mental issues to just decide to kill everybody in your house, including your kids. Or who knows, he may have never even went to sleep. He could have stayed up all night getting drunk and high, and if so, that could also have been a factor. Plus, could you imagine... You're coming out of your house, you're minding your own business, and all of a sudden, you're being shot at. That shit is scary to think about. At this point, Banks goes to Heather Highland's mobile homes to the home of his former girlfriend, Sharon Mazio, and their son, whom he had been trying to get custody of. Banks forced his way into her home, shoots and kills her, then goes in the room where his son is sleeping, puts the gun to his head, and kills his sleeping son. Sharon's mother was also in the home and tried to call the police, and Banks shoots and kills her and Sharon's seven-year-old nephew. Sharon's brother was hiding in the closet, and thankfully Banks didn't see him. 
he was the only survivor and he was able to call the police and identify Banks as the shooter. When the police arrive at the scene at the mobile home park, they were able to make the connection of Olsen and Hall who were discovered at Schoolhouse Lane, which was the street where Banks lived. They found the other victims in Banks' house. At this point, the police are starting to look for Banks and they find that he abandoned his car and carjacked another vehicle. Banks abandons the stolen vehicle and decides to stop in a grassy, isolated area, and he passes out. So when Banks wakes up, he heads to his mother's house. His mother said when he got there, he was crying, then he smelled like liquor. And then when he did that, he told her what he had done. He told his mother to take him somewhere where he wanted to go or there would be a shootout at her home. So at this point, Banks' mom, she calls his house hoping that he's just drunk and rambling and the police actually answered the phone and when Banks found out it was them on the other line or on the other end, he snatched the phone from his mom and asked how the kids were. The police, of course, they're trying to keep him on the phone They tell him that his kids are alive. Banks started screaming at them and telling them that he knew that he had killed them. So he hung up the phone, placed three 30-round clips and numerous other rounds of ammunition in a bag and had his mom take him to a vacated rental house. Shortly after he sent his mom away, the police showed up and the standoff began. The police brought his mother to the station to talk to her She was saying things like she didn't understand. Her son is a good man. This doesn't make any sense. They tried different tactics to get him to surrender. One of the things they tried was a false news report playing over the radio saying that the children were alive and they needed blood to survive. Obviously, that didn't work. So they tried other ways, but Banks did not give up. Finally, a former co-worker of Banks was able to talk him out after a four-hour standoff. I don't think any shots were fired. I wasn't able to find if they were, but I don't think so. I think he was just kind of barricading himself in the house and refusing to come out. So on June 6, 1983, Banks' trial began in He insisted on testifying. Banks claimed that he had only wounded some of the victims and the police had killed the others. It was also said that Banks claimed to have killed his children to keep them from having to suffer the racism that they would have had to deal with of being with mixed race. Several witnesses, Banks' family members, and Olson testified. Olson testified that Banks was the man that shot him and left him for dead. On June 21st, 1983, they presented their closing arguments. Banks' attorney argued that he was insane, but the jury found him guilty of 12 counts of first-degree murder, one count of third-degree murder, attempted murder, aggravated assault, and one count each of robbery, theft, and endangering the life of another person. And on June 22nd, 1983, the jury recommended the death penalty. So, as always, I know it's a lot, y'all, but we're getting to the end. So, obviously, at this point, Banks is in prison. He's not going anywhere. He's not getting out. 
He was incarcerated at the maximum security unit at Huntington, which is in Pennsylvania, until 1985. His appeals reached the Supreme Court, but they refused to overturn his verdict. When he was sent to the correctional, then he was sent to the correctional institute at Greaterford, which is also in Pennsylvania, where he was contained in a housing unit. Banks' attorneys continued to appeal his case from 1987 to 2000, but the Supreme Court refused to hear his attorney's argument that he lacked the mental competency to be executed. In 2001, 2006, and 2008, the court decided to hold hearings about the mental state of Banks in order to determine if he was able to be executed. During the hearings, he exhibited delusional behavior that caused the court to rule him incompetent for execution. I was curious, so I tried to find what kind of behavior he was exhibiting, but I couldn't find anything. So during this time, various appeals were being heard by the state and federal courts. In 2010, there was another hearing held in reference to his competency, and his attorney had said that his mental state had deteriorated significantly in 1982. A judge ruled that Banks was mentally incompetent for execution or to even assist his attorneys in seeking clemency. They continued to house him at the restricted housing unit in Greaterford Prison. As of September 2017, he was still on death row in Pennsylvania. In May of 2018, he was transferred to Phoenix, where he currently resides. So I know the story gets a little bit confusing, but what it boils down to is that George Banks was determined mentally incompetent for execution. And at the time of this podcast, he is 80 years old. He is still alive and he is housed at SCI Phoenix. Also, while I was doing my research, I found that in the 1980s, Banks was diagnosed with paranoid psychosis. Over time, categories have changed and attorneys would now uh, say that it's something more similar to delusional disorder. So, Mass Murder Gang, as always, I always ask, what would you have done? Would you have insisted and or pushed a little harder that your family member get help? You really can't make a grown-ass man or woman do anything they don't want to do. Do you think they should have, that he should have been declared incompetent? Or do you think he knew exactly what he was doing? I personally don't know what I would have done in this situation. This one is really difficult for me. I mean, this was literally and totally unexpected. Yes, he showed signs of mental illness, but he didn't show any signs that he was capable of killing, especially his kids. As far as being mentally incompetent, I'm not sure about that one either. I really wasn't able to find a whole lot of information about him being mentally incompetent or the delusions or anything like that. I will say this though, this story definitely makes me have empathy for the family members that I know of George Banks. I personally couldn't imagine having to live with something like this. From what I could find, I didn't 
I couldn't find any evidence of him being physically abused or having a rough home life. So I guess the trauma of racism triggered whatever mental illness he had going on. Also, I couldn't find if he ever got help, but I'm assuming that he didn't. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have done what he did. So as always, y'all, thank you for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Once again, I am trying to get back on track. I want to do another episode next week if I'm able. So I appreciate y'all hanging in there with me. And I'll be back soon. I will talk to y'all in the next one. Deuces.